reaching the end of his service with the little church where he's been pastor uh, for some years in Hotenburg up to Atalba in the south of Germany. And um, <clears throat> the elders wrote to me uh, shortly before his final service and said, is there any chance that you could come over and preach at his final service? But don't tell him you're coming. I was already booked for great parts, and you very graciously, as I say, let me off with that one. And uh, it was a weird Sunday morning, I can tell you. They have the breaking of bread first thing. I wasn't allowed to go to that because Bernd, my friend, would have been there and he'd have known it would have given the game away. So we were picked up by fast car while the communion service was already going on and kind of stowed in, in a safe place in the entrance uh, while the other service started. <clears throat> and uh, they did a few things uh, to sort of commemorate his, his time with them and so on. And then the guy who's going to be pastor stood up uh, and uh, Bernd thought he was going to preach because that's what it said on the order of service. And Tobias got up and said, well, um, Bernd, um, I could say a few things this morning and I have a few things, but I'll, I'll say them next week. I think we'll do something different this time. And then, would you believe it, they played Flower of Scotland which he called the Scottish National Hymn over the speakers, and I had to march into the Flower of Scotland and start preaching. That was a weird experience, I can tell you, walking down the aisle with your Bible and uh, Flower of Scotland playing in the background. So, so, so whenever I come in future, I'll expect my theme tune. Is that all right? <laughs> but thank you very much for making that possible. Let's read the Bible together, shall we? We're in Matthew chapter 26 this morning. You're well on your way through Matthew, and we've reached one of the longest and most exciting chapters Uh, in the whole book, one of the key ones, and uh, this morning we're going to read from verses 17 to 30, so let's read that together. Matthew 26, 17 to 30. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord? Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. That's our passage. Can we have the... um, Thank you, that's great. The Last Supper, Jesus' final meal with his disciples before he died. And we're thinking a lot about last things today, aren't we? 
It's a hundred years since the First World War came to an end, and in this railway carriage, or where are we going? I'm going the wrong way around. Oops, hang on a second. It's very straight. Okay, here we are. In a railway carriage like this one, uh, this is not the actual one, but it's, it's, it's very, very like it. In Compiègne, in a forest 37 miles north of Paris, this document was signed. It's the armistice. And although at five o'clock in the morning there were only a few dignitaries there and nobody knew what was going on apart from those who were in the know. There we go, that's them. Um, shortly after that, the news went all over the world and at 11 o'clock in the morning, the war came to an end and soon people were celebrating all over everywhere. It was a weird morning, though. For one thing, it was the last act of service from the, for the French army clerk who uh, had to type out the pages of the armistice agreement. He knew nothing about it beforehand. He was woken up, apparently, in the early hours and told that before he was discharged from the army, he had one last job to do. And so he was made to sit at his typewriter and type out with three sheets of carbon paper in in the typewriter uh, this armistice agreement. And uh, there had to be enough copies for everybody to sign one and enough copies to go around all the different places he had to go to. So he was using lots of carbon paper stuffed into his typewriter. I think he had to type out more than one copy. He was typing furiously away to get it ready for 5 a.m. And it was only after he'd finished it that he realised to his horror that he'd put in some of the sheets of carbon paper the wrong way round. And so some of the sheets had the proper text on the front, but a mirror image on the back, and some of the sheets had nothing on whatsoever. So he stapled them together anyway, just praying desperately that nobody would notice. And then he said, right, job done. And they gave him a drink and discharged him from the army. And he went home before anybody could find out what had happened. And amazingly, nobody did find out. And they all signed the document and the the war came to an end. Weird way for a war to end. But although the war finished at 11 o'clock, it wasn't necessarily as simple as that. On that last day, the fighting still went on until the moment of the ceasefire. And on that last day, 11,000 people were wounded, 2,700 of whom, in the very last minutes of the war, lost their lives. We know who some of them were. Uh, This guy, for example, uh, Augustin uh, Trebuchon, on, on, on the left there. Sorry, I'm getting too many clicks at once here. He was somebody who'd been a French soldier right through the war. He'd been at the Marne, he'd been at the Somme, he'd been at Verdun, he'd been all over the place. And he'd come through completely unscathed until 10.45, 15 minutes before the war ended. He was on his way to the front with a message from the rear to say that at 11.30, soup would be provided for his company back at the barracks. And he never made it. He died clutching the document. The last of the uh, British forces to die was this man, uh, George, what's his name, Edwin Ellison, and he died at 9.30. Now, again, he was somebody who had been there in 1914, one of the very first to enlist. He'd come through the war without a scratch until this point. And then, just before the war came to an end, the last British soldier died. But probably the, the last one to die in the war uh, of any side was an American, Henry Gunther, who died at 10.59. And that was a shame. He and his company were advancing through the fog uh, and coming to a German machine gun post. Now, the Germans didn't want to kill anybody in the last five minutes of the war, 
and so they sent a burst of machine gun fire well over the heads of the American soldiers. And they fell to the ground, as you would expect. And the Germans expected that that would be it. They'd just stay there and that nobody, no further fighting would take place. But for some reason, Gunther stood up and started charging towards the, 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 the German post. Nobody knows quite why. And there was nothing much else they could do. It was him or it was them. And so they shot him and he died at 10.59, one minute before the end of the First World War. And uh, just thinking about all these last things <laughs> uh, over this weekend, it struck me that there are three last things in this passage that we've been looking at as well. And that's what I want to talk about really this morning. The three last things of Matthew twenty-six seventeen to 30. The first of those, if I can make it work, there we go, is the last Passover. This is the last time that the Passover would have the meaning it had had for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. After this one, it had no meaning any longer. This was the last one. And Jesus really wanted to celebrate it with his disciples, as you can see here. Um, he's made special preparations in advance. He sends them on this funny journey to find a man, to find a house, so that there's somewhere to, 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 to hold it. Why this cloak and dagger stuff? Well, we'll see that in a moment. But the last Passover is the first thing. Further on in the story, you get the last pretense. The final time when Judas is able to keep the mask up of being a faithful disciple of Jesus. The mask has been slipping for some time. He's decided to betray Jesus. He's gone down a road that's going to lead him to stabbing Jesus in the back. And this is the last occasion on which Judas will be able to pose as a disciple before he finally reveals his hand. And then finally at the end, you get the last praise song. The last time that Jesus sang one of the Psalms in the whole of his life. And what it was is quite interesting, as we'll see when we get there. So, those are the three things I want to talk about this morning. Let's start with the first of those. The last Passover. Come on, come on, you can do it. It's not going to do it, is it? Come on. Hey, there we go. And the last Passover was also the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those two celebrations came together. The Passover was probably the big one uh, for Israelites in the whole of the year. Of course, the whole year, as you know, had all sorts of feasts and festivals studied throughout it. But the Passover was the big one when more people got together than any other time. But it also coincided with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And both of those things, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, look back to the greatest deliverance in the history of Israel when God had brought the entire Israelite nation out of Egypt, amazingly, to go on their way to a country of their own. The Unleavened Bread was all about the fact that they'd eaten in a hurry, in haste. They had to leave what they had in, in Egypt and go out into the unknown, just following God. There was no time to bake bread with yeast in it. And so they ate bread like this, flat, unrisen bread. And for a week every year after that, God commanded the Israelites to eat bread with no yeast in it. Bread that wasn't puffed up. Bread that was just flat bread as a reminder of the, 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 the way that they'd come out of Egypt. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread was all about doing what God wanted. Going out into the unknown, serving him. Leaven throughout the Bible, or yeast became a symbol of what's evil, what's puffed up. And uh, uh, the Bible says just a little bit of yeast leavens a whole lump, 
doesn't it? And that was the way that people used to make bread normally. You'd take, before you put your bread in the oven to bake it, you'd tear a little bit off the end of it, and you'd mix that with the dough for the next lot. And then you'd tear a bit off that and put that into the next lot. And somehow there was still enough yeast in the bit that you tore off to make the next bread rise. And so you kept on doing it. And you hardly ever had to add any yeast to the mix because last, the last lot of yeast, uh, even if it was just a little bit of it, would be enough. And the Bible uses that as a picture of evil, the way that evil can spread through someone's life. But this was a festival of unleavened bread. Festival of complete devotion. No evil, no conceit. Just service for God. Doing what God said. Going out into the unknown. Reminds you, doesn't it, Isaiah chapter 53? The way that Jesus is portrayed there. As someone who was prepared to to just follow the will of God wherever uh, it took him. He was oppressed and afflicted. But he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before a shearer's is dumb... He didn't open his mouth. He didn't answer back. He simply went on and did what God wanted him to do. But the Passover, too, was a picture of what Jesus was about to do on the cross. Because the Passover was a time when, well, it was a very bad time to be a sheep. Let's just put it like that. Because at the Passover, lambs had to be sacrificed. On the 10th of Nisan, four days before, you would take the lamb you had chosen into your household and it would be part of the household for four days. It's speculated that maybe Jesus' lamb for this particular Passover was kept by uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha in, in Bethany for him. But we just don't know. In fact, there are arguments about whether there really was a lamb involved in the Last Supper or not. But let's not get into that one this morning because nobody really knows. But uh, certainly in a normal Passover... Those lambs would be kept until the 14th of Nisan, and then they would be executed. And there were only two hours between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the afternoon when it was done by the priests at the temple. And they must have been working hard because we're told by Josephus, the Jewish historian, that 25,000 lambs were sacrificed at the time of Passover for over 2 million worshippers. And the, the whole thing was a a, a reminder of what God had done when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Blood had been shed. It had been put on the the lintel of the doors of the houses where the Israelites lived. And that blood protected them from the wrath of God. And in the same way, Jesus was just about to give his life on the cross so that those who believed in him, those who followed him, need never suffer as he had done. So the last Passover is uh, at the heart of this passage we read this morning. And Jesus must have known, as all of this happened around him, that God's timing was absolutely perfect. This was all pointing towards something that now could not be avoided. He was going to be the fulfillment of everything that the Passover had stood for, everything that the festival of unleavened bread had stood for, for centuries and centuries and centuries. Suddenly, those Old Testament pictures were not looking back to Egypt any longer. They were looking forward to something that was going to happen just outside the city wall on the very next day. And so Jesus was determined to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. The last Passover. 
Of course, the Jewish people kept on celebrating Passover again and again in the years after that. For 40 more years, the lambs would be killed at the temple until in AD 70, the Romans marched in, having lost patience with the the Jews, and burned down the temple, and uh, then temple worship finished completely. But even after that, in their own homes, Jews kept on uh, observing the Passover year on year on year. But the meaning had gone out of it. Because when Jesus died on the cross, that was a fulfillment of everything that that picture was promising. Jesus, the servant of God, going out on his own, the unleavened bread in action, going and dying on the cross as God's sacrificial lamb. The last Passover. But it's, it's sobering, isn't it? When you look at the story of the last Passover, this thing does not want to move on to see yeah, if I hold it a foot further forward. That's what does it. The, uh, the, you see the last pretense going on as well. You see there's Judas there as well as everybody else. And Jesus puts him into the position of honor at his left-hand side. Jesus dips a piece of bread into the, 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 the bowl that's in front of him and gives it to Judas, which is a sign of distinction. You didn't use knives and forks, you see, at Passover meals, or in fact, for any meals in those days. I remember when I went to Pakistan a few years ago to, to uh, preach to some German missionaries, um, that was one of the interesting things to get used to, the fact that there was no tableware or anything like that. You just had a raita, a, a piece of unleavened bread, and you'd tear off a strip of it and kind of use it as a spoon to scoop up the curry or whatever it was you were eating. And uh, uh, you had to wipe your fingers after the, uh, afterwards because it was a pretty messy procedure especially for a Westerner who didn't know how to do it without a fork and knife. But uh, that's exactly how it was in Jesus' day. And so Jesus makes a lot of Judas, but he knows what's going on. He understands very, very clearly. And Judas becomes aware in the middle of all of this that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. See, Judas doesn't decide here to betray Jesus He'd already been on a slippery slope all the way down. And I guess if you put together what the Bible tells us about Judas, there are about nine stages in the betrayal that you see happening. Judas was always a slippery customer. Um, he was a bit like the, the Spiv um, guy in, in uh, Dad's army, who's always doing a deal in the background. For some reason, he was given the purse to look after. He was the treasurer of the group. But we know, the Gospels tell us, that he was stealing money from the purse. He wasn't honest with the other disciples. There was always a bit of duplicity about Judas. But uh, as Jesus' career went on, and it made just no sense to him, uh, uh, more and more he thought Jesus was going to be the king, he thought he was going to deliver Israel. Eventually, you read in Luke chapter 22 that Satan enters Judas. Now, it's, I, I remember when the film The Exorcist first came out in 1973. I was a very new youth worker in those days. And uh, do you remember the story of The Exorcist? How this, this small girl in America is suddenly possessed by the devil and all sorts of weird things happen to her. It was a big box office hit in, in those days. And there were teenagers all over the country who suddenly became absolutely convinced that uh, the devil was real. And if they were walking along the street and the devil saw them, suddenly, whoop, he could just come inside them and they'd be rolling about on the floor and the face would go all green and funny stuff would come out of their ears and things like that. And uh, youth workers like me had to spend a lot of time with very worried young people in those days who'd lied about their age, got in to see the film and are now terrified of what the devil was going to do to them. But the devil can't do that. (laughs) And that was one of the things we had to say to them. The devil cannot just invade you at will. You have to make an opening for him. 
And when it says that Satan entered Judas, it wasn't against Judas's will. It was because Judas had been making that opening for him, had been contemplating uh, what he could do for some time. You see, when you open up your life to shortcuts, compromises, living on a lower level than you, you, you ought to be living, it's amazing how the devil can use that as a foothold to gain more and more territory in your life. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, as um, an army will not discharge a soldier in time of war, so evil will not discharge those who practice it. It's as if you're a soldier in the army, you've joined up, you're having a great time because you get three square meals a day, lovely uniform to wear, you love it when the band plays and you're marching down the street and all the girls are going, oh, isn't he handsome, and so on and so forth. It's a great life in the army. And then you hear... War has been declared. And so you go to the sergeant major and say, well, Sergeant Major, uh, thank you very much for having me in the army. I've had a lovely time and uh, I'm, I've really enjoyed the meals and uh, the uniform and all the rest of it. And it's been fun marching around in public and so on. But now I'd like to go home if you don't mind. What's he going to say? Get back in the barracks. This is what you're here for. Soldiers are signed up for war. There's no way you're going to be discharged in wartime. And if you practice evil, says Ecclesiastes... Evil will not discharge you either. When you decide, now it's time to give up, you won't be able to. And that, I guess, is what happens to to, to Judas. And as you follow the the, the track of the way he developed, you find him going in the very next verse after that. Just to discuss with the chief priests and the guards, to explore possibilities for uh, betraying Jesus to them. He's not yet decided to do it, because you find that it's a little bit further on, I said, a little bit further on, come on. Um, so we got two at last again. Never mind. In Luke 22, 6, that Judas actually consents to do it. He wasn't convinced when he went to see the chief priests and the guards, but they talked him into it. And they're so excited about it, he says, okay, I will do that. And you find in John 13, 2, that when the, the, the Last Supper starts, the devil has already prompted Judas to get on with it and make it happen. And you see how stage by stage, Judas is being pushed more and more into this action. And uh, one of the big steps forward, I guess, is in verse 25 of this chapter, when Jesus actually tells uh, Judas that he knows about the betrayal. Jesus has said to the group, one of you is going to betray me. He's got to say that here because he doesn't want them to be too shocked when it happens later on. And for them to know that this 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 is something that Jesus has predicted and talked about will help them to cope with what happens. Otherwise, they'd have no chance of coping with it. And so he tells them. But he doesn't identify Judas. And we know from the other Gospels <laughs> that Peter makes a signal to John. And says, come on, you're close to Jesus. You find out who it is. And uh, so John says to Jesus, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the person that I will give the piece of, of, of bread to when I've dipped it in the bowl. And he obviously says that quietly so that John hears, but nobody else. And then he passes it to Judas. And whether John just doesn't take it on board to start with, or whether he thinks that somehow Jesus is speaking metaphorically in one of those weird ways that Jesus sometimes speaks that the disciples don't understand, or whether he's just so shocked by the whole thing, Judas, really? The treasurer, the bag carrier, him? We just don't know. But it seems that John doesn't say anything to Peter, and Jesus says to to Judas, look, I know what you're going to do. Go and do it quickly. And Judas has said to him hypocritically, It's surely not me, Lord. 
And Jesus says, yep, you've said it. Oh, yes, it is. And so as the, the eyes lock, Judas realizes Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. And so he's almost gone too far now. There's no way he can back down. And so uh, J- Judas takes the bread and Satan enters into him, says John. That's interesting. Hello, hang on a minute. Didn't Satan enter Judas back in Luke 22? Well, he did right at the start of the process. But Satan comes and goes, doesn't he? And what this means is not that Satan has come to inhabit uh, Judas's thoughts that had been happening all the way through but now Satan comes and gives Judas the impulse it's too late to do anything go do it right now do what the man says get out there make it happen and so Judas goes out he leaves immediately and of course the betrayal happens Mark chapter 14 and Matthew 27 you see the final stage after it's over Judas says I'm guilty of the blood of an innocent man. What was I thinking about? Why did I do that? Who got me doing that? And he's absolutely desperate. And Jesus' prophecy has come true. It would be better for the man who betrays me if he'd never been born. And Judas is so filled with revulsion at what he's done and the way he's gone that he kills himself. So this is the last pretense that's happening here as we read this story. Judas is only just holding his mask in place in front of his face. But he's being pushed further and further towards the point where he'll do the unthinkable and betray Jesus to the cross. Evil doesn't come all at once, does it? (laughs) Evil takes a hold of your life bit by bit. And you can keep on looking as if you're just like any other regular disciple for a very long time before finally you're exposed It's a warning to us, isn't it? It's possible to look like everybody else. It's possible to pretend. And yet to have a heart of rebellion inside you, which nobody else suspects, which is driving you further and further and further away from where you ought to be until you reach the point where there's no going back. But there's one more thing that we've got to mention before we finish in this chapter. We've had the last Passover, the last pretense. The final thing is the last praise song. Because do you notice at the end of this chapter, uh, this passage rather, where Jesus has, has done something unusual to the Passover service. He said, listen, this is going to be different in future. It's not going to be about the Passover. It's going to be about my body and my blood. And you don't need to kill any lambs. Some bread some wine, that's all you need. And you will have to remember me after I'm gone in that way because this is what overshadows all of the pictures of the Old Testament. This is what fulfills and completes everything that God was pointing towards. This is the missing piece of the jigsaw. This is what it's all about. And Jesus knows Judas is on his way to betray him even as he's saying those words. And so he's facing his death. And then Jesus makes his promise, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. kingdom. And then it says they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. What hymn? Well, we can just about tell, actually. We know what hymn. (laughs) Because in the Passover service, uh, they used the Egyptian Hallel. (laughs) That's a group of Psalms. Towards the end of the book of the Psalms, from 113 to 118, 
which was always used as part of Passover worship. It's called the Egyptian Hallel because, again, those psalms look back to the time when the Israelites came out of Egypt. And it's called Hallel because that word means praise. They're praise songs. Hallel, of course, is where you get the word hallelujah from. And so by this point in the Passover, they would have worked their way through Psalms 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, and 118. Uh, 117. They hadn't finished 118. And so him, uh, Psalm 118, if you look at it, sums up exactly how Jesus was getting ready for the cross as he set out to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. What was he doing? Well, he was preparing for distress. Some of the words of the psalm. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. It's a psalm that talks about going into trouble and knowing that God is there with you in it and that whatever happens to you, God is going to be there right through the distress. And Jesus knows what's coming. He can imagine the cross. He knows what his trial is going to be like. He knows what his arrest is going to be like. There's not much longer to wait. And so he's preparing for distress. But he's doing more than that as well. He's keeping his vision clear of what it's all about. Uh, Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. And Jesus is looking forward to the result of what's going to happen. He's looking beyond the cross to the resurrection. He's looking at a, a, a crowd so vast. No man can number it, standing it before the throne of God in heaven, worshipping the Lamb. And so, as Hebrews puts it, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He kept his vision clear. He knew what the end of the process would be. And however much it cost him personally, he was prepared to go with it. So that was going on. But there were other things as well. Uh, For another thing, he was claiming God's help. Psalm 118 says this too. I am not afraid. What, sorry, these boxes have got resized for some reason. Anyway, what can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. He's going to get through the cross and he's going to do it by uh, the, the, the help of his Father in heaven. Certainly, the moment will come when he hangs on the cross and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the ultimate meaning of the cross was that the Father and the Son were separated from the unity with one another which had existed since before time itself. And the Son was alone, suffering on our behalf, the wrath of God. But uh, right up to that point, God was going to be with him. He was going to give him the strength to keep going. And it was the strength of his Father that was going to take him right to the moment where the nails went through his hands and his feet. He was not only claiming God's help, he was trusting God's wisdom. He was going to ask his father in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, is there any way that this can be taken away from me? And yet he was going to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I know you know best. And if this is the only way to go, if I've got to drink this cup, I'm going to drink it. And so, Psalm 118 again, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it's marvellous in our eyes. And of course that becomes a a, a key Christian verse. One that they quoted again and again in the early church. One that you find used in 1 Peter and all over the place to say this is what's happened to Jesus. He's become the cornerstone of the whole new house that God is building. And also claiming God's help, trusting God's wisdom, 
counting on God's love. (laughs) Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. That phrase comes up twice in Psalm 118, right at the start and right at the finish. And so Jesus goes to his death singing a hymn which is bracketed by an affirmation of God's love. He's good. His love endures forever. And if I have to go through the cross to bring that love in its fullness back to sinful human beings, I'm going to do that. Fantastic, isn't it? That that's the hymn Jesus sang just before he went. Just finish with one last little story. This is a guy from the First World War, G.A. Studdart Kennedy, (laughs) better known as Woodbine Willie. Because in the First World War, he was notorious for going around the front lines giving cigarettes to soldiers. He didn't know much about lung cancer and stuff like that in those days. He just knew that 96% of the troops smoked because it was one of the few things that got them through. And his biographer, who, who wrote his story about five years ago, calculated that he must have spent just about every penny of his army wages on buying cigarettes because we know that he gave away over 85,000 woodbines. Most of the people concerned weren't going to get lung cancer through it because they were going to die in the next few days anyhow. And in fact, some of the people he gave a cigarette to, it was the very last they had, because he was a brave man, and he'd venture into no man's land to soldiers who were obviously beyond help and couldn't be brought back, were just dying out there in in, in no man's land with not a friendly voice near them and he'd give them their last cigarette out in no man's land. Interesting form of Christian ministry, but there you go. And uh, Stunner Kennedy became well known after the war, not just for that, but also because he wrote a book of poetry called Rough Rhymes of a Padre. And some of his poems about what it was really like out there in the trenches, what it was really like for people to go through the horrors of war, and yet have some kind of faith in God, made a massive, massive impact on the post-war world. And uh, he wrote one poem uh, about the way in which people neglect Jesus in the modern world, which sticks with me. And and, uh, his poems were never very good when he said rough rhymes. He wasn't lying. That wasn't an offence against the Trade Descriptions Act. It's not great poetry, but it makes a point. And uh, his poem about Jesus went like this. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him to a tree. They drave great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. A crown of thorns upon his head, his wounds were red and deep, for those were rough and cruel days and human life was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they simply passed him by. They would not touch a hair of him. They simply let him die. For men had grown more tender and they would not cause him pain. And so they just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained the wintry rain that drenched him through and through. The crowd passed on and left the street without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against a wall and cried for Calvary. Now that's an exaggeration. Jesus would never want to go back to Calvary. Calvary was the ultimate horror of all history. 
But that deliberate exaggeration is there because what Studdart Kennedy is saying is there you see, Jesus can do all of that for you and yet you can turn and walk away from him. And it cut him to the quick that men going to their death in the First World War had no time for Jesus Christ, the one who was prepared to go through the Last Supper and onto the cross simply so that the joy set before him could be complete. Simply so that human beings all over the world in every phase of history could come to know the love and the reality of God for themselves and could become part of that worldwide family as many as the grains of sand on the seashore in multitude. And as we think gratefully of all that was done for us in the First World War, the Second World War and every other human conflict since, let's not forget the sacrifice that Jesus made and the way it comes alive through the passage we've read this morning. Let's just pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we've heard this story so many times. It's easy for our hearts to grow cold towards it. But help us see in all that happened to your son that fateful night, the traces of his love, his sacrificial self-giving for us and help us respond to him with everything we've got. Help us understand the last Passover, the fact that Jesus was finally fulfilling everything that the whole of history had pointed towards up until this moment when God's rescue plan at immense expense was going to be complete and help us understand and appreciate what it cost for Jesus to go through with it. Help us understand the last pretense as well. And look at how Judas finally went over the edge. Help us realize how easy it is for us just to allow the wrong things to get a grip of us until in the end we betray everything which we should be standing for. And help us as we look at that last praise song to see just how Jesus approached the greatest test of his life and apply that same thinking, that same willingness to go through with it to the tests that we face in our discipleship for him. Help us not to neglect the Christ who died for us on the cross, but to show him the gratitude and the respect and the remembrance that he deserves. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.